If you will, make your way in the Word of God to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll consider together today the first 11 verses in this chapter and a message entitled, A Heart for Fellowship. In 2019, we are celebrating 60 years of the faithfulness of God in the life and the ministry of Cross Lanes Baptist Church. Our theme for the year is Renewed. It's based on Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 to 24, that the mercies of God are new every morning. The faithfulness of God is great. His love for us is unceasing. And this is a wonderful time to be with us as a church, especially from now through the end of October. We're focusing on this renewed theme, thinking about who we are as the body of Christ and as the family of God and how each one of us can be faithful disciples of Jesus. And the Renewed Generosity campaign and sermon series that we are in has already focused on the importance of faith, worship, and now today we're thinking together about the subject of fellowship. Now it comes as no surprise to you that there is an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in our society. I would say that this is rather ironic considering the fact that we are living in the most connected age in some ways that has ever existed on the face of the planet, but yet people are growing and increasing in their loneliness. There was one sociological study that was done in 1985, and it discovered that among Americans, Americans said at that time that they had on average three close friends, three people that they would call confidants or people that they could truly count on. That study was updated recently, and that number of three had dropped to one. And to make matters even more serious, one out of four people could not even name one person that they considered to be a close friend or a confidant that they could count on. And some research has even shown that a deficiency in social connections is even more serious for us than other health concerns that we might have. Because this deficiency that we have in social connections brings all sorts of problems, physically, emotionally, spiritually, every aspect of our lives are affected by it. Uh, There's a professor by the name of Brene Brown, who's a sociological uh, study professor, And she wrote this, not from a Christian perspective necessarily, but certainly from a human perspective. And listen uh, to what was written. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irresistible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to function. We break, we fall apart, we ache, we hurt others, we get sick. We are profoundly social creatures. We may think that we want money or power, fame, beauty, eternal youth, or a new car, but at the root of most of these desires is a need to belong, to be accepted, to connect with others, and to be loved. The Apostle Paul wrote this epistle or letter to the church at Philippi. It was the first church that he founded in the region of Macedonia, and it was on his second missionary journey 
that he and his colleagues went into that area, having answered the Macedonian call, as we know it, to take the gospel. And there was a pattern that emerged on his missionary journeys, as it did in Philippi, and that the faithful servants of God would go in with the gospel, proclaim the good news to the people that they needed to be saved, that there was a God that they could be right with through his son, Jesus Christ. People came to faith in Christ and began to live as disciples. They gathered together to learn. They established themselves as the church gathered together in that local place. Leadership developed and was established. And then they began to replicate what they had learned. They began to send out others who would share the gospel. And that pattern was continued over and over again. So certainly in our efforts as a church, that would be the model that we want to follow. We want to see the gospel take root. We want to see people gather together and begin to learn. We want to see a church formed and leaders established in that place. And then we want to see the mission carried out. And it was there at Philippi that Paul had proclaimed the gospel to Lydia and to the Philippian jailer and to others. And as they came to faith in Christ, that church gathered together as a church that was particularly close. Now, this epistle has been uh, known for a long time as the epistle of joy. And it's Paul's emphasis on joy that is kind of the overarching theme, if you will, of the entire letter. But there are some underlying reasons why it's an epistle of joy. And one of those underlying reasons is the strength of the fellowship or the strength of the connectivity of the people of God. Now, by the time Paul wrote this, about 10 or 12 years had already passed. Paul found himself at that point under house arrest. Uh, He had appealed, as his right was, as a Roman citizen to the Caesar, and he had ended up in Rome. His movement was restricted. His ability to actually physically be with the church was restricted, and he wanted to write to them to be able to encourage them and to help them be further established in their faith and also in their work for God. So he knew, thanks to Rome, that his time on the earth was limited, and he wanted his ministry, but most importantly, he wanted the church of God to be strong and to last and to be sure that they had the foundation that they needed. And he's writing to this church as a church that had a strong Christian fellowship. Now, let me just tell you what I think Christian fellowship is and give you a very simple definition. This is by no means exhaustive. It's not the definitive answer to all questions about Christian fellowship, but I think it frames for us what we're thinking about in this passage of Scripture together today. Christian fellowship is the sharing together of life in God. Let me say that again. Christian fellowship is the sharing together of life in God. So we have fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Spirit. And then by virtue of our common calling through one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, we have fellowship with one another. So we might say it this way. We have vertical fellowship with God and our communion with him and our connection to him as our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. And then we have the horizontal relationships within the church, within the family of God, as we are sharing together in the life of God. 
Now, there was a pattern that emerged early on after Pentecost when the church was established and the power of the Spirit came. The people, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, devoted themselves to the fellowship. So early on, as the church was established, the principle that was put into place was that the church is to devote themselves to the fellowship, that we are to commit ourselves to the connection that we have with one another because of the relationship that we have with God. So that means that the church is not a place that you go as a religious consumer to get your spiritual fix. And I think one of the challenges that we are pushing up against in the West in the context of the church in the United States is that many of our models have been based on an attractional model. And the faith has almost been marketed like a product and the byproduct of the product are the blessings that we receive. And we have this consumer mentality. It's not much different than when you go to Walmart and you get whatever you need or you go to the grocery store and you get whatever you need and then you go home. And the faith is seen almost like that by many people because it's, a, it's just a spectator sport, if you will, rather than a participatory connectedness within the family of God. And that's what we want to push back against in the church, recognizing what it means to be committed to the fellowship. The church is not an organization for consumers. The church is the family of God drawn together by a common faith. J.I. Packer wrote in his piece, Your Father Loves You, fellowship means common participation in something, either by giving what you have to the other person or receiving what he or she has. Give and take is the essence of fellowship, and give and take must be the way of fellowship in the common life of the body of Christ. And then he writes this, Christian fellowship is two-dimensional. It must be vertical before it can be horizontal. We must know the reality of fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, before we can know the reality of fellowship with each other in our common relationship with God. So we begin reading in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Here's what the scripture says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In these few moments that God has given us together today, 
I want to share with you three expressions of fellowship. What does it look like when we have a heart for fellowship? And the first is this. A heart for fellowship is expressed by praying for one another. It's expressed by praying for one another. Paul and Timothy worked together in serving the Lord. They worked together in planting churches in the mission. And in the opening greeting, he addresses the church according to who he understood himself to be and who he understood the church to be. He refers to himself and to Timothy as well as a servant. He understood that the greatest position that we can have in the kingdom of God is that of a servant. Mark chapter 9 and verse 35 says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is countercultural to everything that we're taught in the age that we live in. This is the age of me. This is the age of all eyes are on me. So let me do something funny, or let me do something this dramatic, or let me do something that's just maybe crazy. So somebody will think that it was valuable, and there might be a laugh, or there might be a moment of cultural affirmation, and I'm seen as something that is uh, someone who is contributing to society. And sometimes in the church, it can become about us. You serve only when you think you're going to be properly noticed. You only do what is convenient in your life that you think might bring some type of benefit to you, the byproduct of the main product that's getting marketed. And Paul simply says, I'm a servant. This is my role. And to be a servant means that we fade into the background and God and his glory comes to the forefront It's not about all eyes on us. It's about all of the focus being on Jesus. And then we're blessed when we do that in a way that we cannot otherwise be blessed. So Paul the servant is writing to the believers who are identified as saints. Their standing was as ours is in who they were in Christ. They were justified. They were forgiven of their sins. They were set apart for the glory of God. And that's who we are. We are saints who are to be servants in the work of God. Now, notice also that the church by this point was well established. And the reason that we know that is that there were leaders, overseers, pastors, and deacons who had been established at that point. And Paul's wanting to communicate to both the leadership and the remainder of the church what was on his heart. So he greets them with grace and peace uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now I think this is important because Paul could recall what he had seen take place in their midst. These were memories of what God had done in that church family. And when you commit yourself to the work of God over the long haul with a local body of Christ, with a local expression of God's family, then you have the blessing of experiencing many remembrances together. And prayer that comes out of that flows from our fellowship. It builds unity. And the prayers of God's people are used to accomplish His will. 
J.P. Boyce said, I think 90% of all the divisions between true believers in the world would disappear entirely if Christians would learn to pray constantly and specifically for one another. So our prayers together draw us together because we see the shared mission that God has for us. And we as the family want to honor our Father. Now, we practically cultivate uh, fellowship in our church through the purposeful gathering of small groups. That happens a couple of different ways. Primarily, it happens on our Sunday morning Bible fellowship groups at 9 and 1030. It also happens through discipleship opportunities that I referenced uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, And as men and women gather together and people come together as the family of God, what we're doing is we're saying... This is the core of who we want to be as we learn about the life of the church, we study the Word of God together, we minister, and we pray. Now, there's something important about these prayers that I don't want you to miss here. The ability to pray for one another implies that you know enough to pray. Here's what I mean by that. As much as I appreciate uh, people who participate in the life of our church Uh, through the public gathered worship time. I also want to challenge you equally toward the value of gathering together in smaller groups of people. It is incredibly difficult if you're only here periodically in a gathered public worship setting and you're not committing yourself to a smaller group of God's people and whatever that looks like, you're missing out on the opportunity to know and to be known. You're missing out on the opportunity of knowing enough about people to be able to actually pray for them on a personal level. And the ability to pray for one another implies not only that you know enough to pray, but it implies you actually care enough to pray. We're instructed in the scripture to pray for one another and to do so without ceasing. And we have to care about other people as much or more than we care about ourselves. And then we get to see God at work. And the ability to pray for one another implies that you believe that God as your father is also concerned about the needs that other people have. And that God is able to actually answer your prayers. First Peter 3 and verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Do you know people who call themselves a part of the body of Christ at Cross Saints Baptist Church well enough to pray for them by name and by need? If not, what I'm saying to you today is come a little closer. Come from the periphery into the center of this shared life of God together with him and with us. Don't be an individual who is an outer liar, who's not connecting, because you're missing a tremendous and rich blessing of coming together with the people of God. And I encourage you toward that because it's so important to your spiritual life. D.A. Carson said, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. 
Put the priorities of the gospel at the center of your prayer life. It only takes a moment's reflection to see that all these petitions are gospel-centered. They are gospel prayers. That is, they are prayers offered to advance the work of the gospel in the lives of the Philippian believers. And by asking for gospel fruit in their lives, the ultimate purpose of these petitions is to bring glory to God who redeemed them. So the first expression of a heart for worship uh, and fellowship is the importance of praying together and praying for one another. The second expression of a heart for fellowship is that a heart for fellowship is expressed by working together. Look with me, if you will, at verse 5. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word there that is translated in some translations as partnership is the word koinonia. I think the better translation here as is in some of the older translations particularly, is fellowship, because that's the word. Now, it's a fellowship that connects with a partnership, but it is a fellowship that is deeper than just what we do. It is a fellowship that is characterized by who we are. It's a fellowship that is rooted and anchored in our relationship with God. And from the very outset, the Philippian church had joined in the work of the gospel and in the fellowship of the gospel with Paul. Now, some believe that Paul was referring primarily here to the gifts that he received from the Philippian church. And certainly they were important to him. But as I read this in context, I think there's a whole lot more going on here. And I say that because Paul left the matter of their gift till the last possible moment in this book. And if you look at Paul's prayers, something important can be discovered. He begins with praise, and then he moves to petition. And in his praise, he almost always, almost always gives thanks for the faith of the recipients of the letter. And that's what he does here. He thanks God primarily for their faith before he has a whole lot to say about their money. Now, this is important for us, particularly where we are right now. Uh, We are coming up on the need to continue on in our capital resources. And I told you from the very beginning when I started preaching this series of messages that we have a philosophy here that we present the need, and then we trust that God's Holy Spirit will move in people's heart to provide the need. And that turns out that we don't talk a whole lot about money specifically. What we talk about is the heart, because we're believers in the fact that God, when he moves in the heart of a person, will stir them toward the necessary generosity that fits with the provision that he's given to them. And we trust God with the result of that. And I think that's what Paul did. And yes, we have some significant needs coming up to finish what we started. And yes, it takes significant sacrifice from people who are willing to give above and beyond as they have now for many years. But I just believe that's going to continue because our hearts are directed toward what God wants us to do. So when Paul gives thanks for the fellowship or the partnership of the Philippians in the gospel from the first day until now, He's primarily referencing the fellowship that they had with him by virtue of coming to faith in Christ. Of course, it resulted in hospitality from Lydia and and others, the Philippian jailer. Uh, There are examples here from that church. But the thrust of the joy is not that they had given Paul money and supported the work. 
the thrust of the joy was that they had faith in God. And that has to be the thrust of our joy as well. That has to be the, the, really the heart of who we are. And, and yes, we accomplish many things together. And we see the mission advance for the glory of God. And we see all these good things happening through the local ministry of this church. And we see families strengthened and built up. But the most important thing that we can exalt our great God for is to say that we have believed in Jesus. It's our faith. And that common faith... It pulls us together like nothing in the world can pull us together. And the essential thing to see from this passage is Paul's perspective on laboring together in the gospel. The Philippians understood that they were senders. Paul and his companions understood that they were goers. To say it another way, one was the bow and the others were the arrows One understood that they were holding on to the rope. The others knew that they were taking hold of the rope as they went out into the mission. And in the words of William Carey, when he went to India, he said, I will go down, but you must hold the rope. So I ask you today, church, who are you holding the rope for? Who are you praying for and asking God to work through And we are incapable of doing anything of eternal value apart from the Spirit of God and apart from our connection to Jesus as the vine, our Father as the vine dresser, and we as branches on that vine. So let me say this to you another way. Jesus does not save us so that we can add church attendance to our weekly to-do list. That's the consumer mentality. Are you seeing the difference here, the the struggle in the Scripture between the consumer mentality and the person that is committed to the gospel and committed to the family of God? He does not save you so that you can periodically come and get a religious fix and feel good about yourself. He has saved you so that you can make Him known and so that you can do good works which you were created for beforehand for the glory of God. Of God. He saved you so that you can be an active member of the family of God. And I'm so thankful for the core that, that, that gets that and understands it. And we do it imperfectly because we're imperfect people. But yet we're yielding ourselves to God and we're saying, God, help us. We want to be a part of making your name known and your glory exalted throughout all the earth. So I say to those of you who have not yet come to full participation in the family of God, maybe you're not even in the family of God and you need Christ today. I say to you, repent and believe. But I say to those of you who are professing believers, if you're out there on the peripheral somewhere and you're not engaged as you know God wants you to be, I'm saying to you today, Lean in a little closer. Come on in a little bit closer, and let's see what God wants to do with us collectively. Let's push back against this uh, consumer mentality that has saturated the church. Let's push back against this easy believism that says that we can just pray a prayer and then God doesn't anticipate that we'll do anything else in our lives for Him. Let's see the value of what Christ has done for us. 
Let's see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and the truth of the Word of God transforming us along the way. And let's understand that every one of us, every one of us who knows Jesus is gifted spiritually. And we need all of the gifts functioning so that we can be obedient as the body of Christ. And I want you to think just for a moment, I'm going to push this analogy a little bit further about how different the vision of the biblical idea of working together is from how a lot of churches market themselves today. And here's what I mean by that. Can you imagine the Philippian church, if they had the the ability to do it, taking out a social media ad, highlighting how amazing their coffee bar was? Can you imagine them advertising on social media about how relevant the messages were in a self-help kind of way? Can you imagine them marketing on social media about how upbeat and exciting their music was and how wonderful their lights were and how exciting it was to be in that atmosphere of that worship that's just jumping? This is so far from the biblical vision of what it means to be the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think you ought to have bad coffee. I think you ought to have good coffee. I like good coffee. If you want to bring some good snacks along with it, bring some good snacks along with it. I I think that the Bible is eternally relevant. It applies to every facet of life. I think you ought to have worship that is God-exalting and that is uh, theologically saturated with the truth of Scripture. I think we ought to have these things. But when those things become the main thing, we as a church have lost our way. We've lost our way. And that's not what he's talking about in working together. One illustration of this is uh, comparing the church to a symphony and how God composes a symphony for his kingdom. He's formed an orchestra called the church and the Each one in the orchestra, God has given a part and an instrument to play. And the purpose of the church is to hold God up to the world and to display his glory for all the world to see. And just as no individual can play a symphony on their own, no individual believer can fulfill God's eternal plan alone. God's plan requires working together to glorify him. We are individual members, but it takes a unified orchestra to play the symphony, and each of us plays the instrument God calls us to. So here's the message of the family of God, and I'm going to show it to you in this passage. And it's going to push back again a little bit against this consumerism mentality, but I want you to hear it. And I especially want you to hear it if you're thinking about becoming a part of this church fellowship. Who are we? What drives us? What's important to us? What do we care about? What do we devote our resources to? What are we passionate about? And here's the invitation. It's a little bit different than what you hear in a lot of churches today, but here it is. Hey, come and serve with us. We've got work for you to do. And the reason that we know that is because you're gifted if you know Jesus. And God has a mission, and that's to go and to make disciples. And he uses his local church to bring that about. And every part of the symphony 
is necessary. Come serve with us. We have work for you to do. But I want you to notice beginning in verse 7, what else he says. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the call is not only come and serve with us, the call is come and suffer with us. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Paul ends up in prison for his faith. Ultimately, it cost him his life. And yet he says, you are partakers with me, even in my imprisonment. And sometimes I think we only want to show what feels good and what's happy. And again, we we market ourselves like that. We present ourselves as it's always happy and it's always a celebration and it's always just a, a truck full of gold. That's the way it's presented in much of the church today. Listen, what about the lament What about the people of God that are going through difficulties right now and they know perhaps that their lives may be shortened on this earth? They're dealing with some type of physical ailment that might limit their very existence on this earth. Or what about the times when we lose somebody who's close to us, that is dear to us, that we love? Or what about the times that we step out and we're bold in the gospel and we get ridiculed for that and we get marginalized for it? There is suffering in the kingdom of God, but the reward and the glory beyond it is far greater than anything that we could suffer in the here and now. And though we exist in a fallen creation, we have a Redeemer who has already accomplished the victory, and we await the final consummation. And I think part of the church and the fellowship that we have together is yes, rejoicing and having a good time together and laughing and being blessed by all the good things of life. But it's also just making sense out of the things that don't make sense. It's putting into perspective life on this earth. And it helps us move beyond that. So come serve with us and come suffer with us, but also come defend and confirm the gospel with us. He says that they had partnered with him in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Now this is similar to what Jude would say, that we are to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And as the people of God, we have the opportunity to both defend the gospel and confirm the gospel. And there are constant attacks on the gospel. There are things that are very subtle, and there are very th- things that are very boldly insidious that come as a hard attack against the gospel. And one of the things that we do when we come together as the body of Christ in the fellowship is say, this is our foundation. We, we are standing on the truth of what God has communicated to us. And even when the culture flows against it and the culture makes fun of it and the culture tells us that it's outdated and it's ridiculous and it's absurd, we're saying, thus saith the Lord. And we believe that God's word is the authority and that God's word is our strong foundation. And we have to be willing to give an answer to everyone who asks us the reason for the hope that is within us. So a heart for fellowship is expressed by working together. 
There's a third expression of a heart for fellowship, and that is a heart for fellowship is expressed by confident faith in God. Verse 6, he says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a work of God from the start to the finish. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. He's confined to his quarters. He has virtually no mobility. He's been accused of treason by the religious leaders of the day. He's been accused by some of his own brethren of wrongdoing. And if Paul is to be found guilty by the Caesar of doing these things and his life is cut short, here's the question he was asking. Would the church make it? Would the believers endure? Would their faith continue on? And the answer is a resounding and confident yes. And the reason that is a resounding and a confident yes is because this was not Paul's work. This was God's work. This was not Paul's church. This was God's church. Paul had not begun the work in Philippi. Ultimately, God had. And from the Macedonian vision in Troas to the meeting with the women by the riverside to the miraculous conversion of the jailer, it was all a work of God. And you can mark this down and take it home with you. What God starts, he always finishes. Now, I like to watch that show, American Pickers, on occasion. And I know all the reality TV is staged. I have a willing suspension of disbelief, so I just watch it and act like it's real. And what's funny about the American Pickers is it's kind of the opposite of who I really am. I trend to be more toward a minimalist. Um, I can't stand clutter, can't stand junk. I'll throw something away just to keep from getting something cluttered. But there's this theme that comes up on American Pickers pretty often. The other evening I was watching it, and uh, they were dealing with the son of a father who had passed on. And this father was a collector of cars. Man, he had every kind of car you could imagine. They, some of them were extremely valuable. And the son's trying to determine what in the world he's going to do with all this stuff that his father collected. So they're walking amongst the cars, and the son's telling a story. Yeah, my dad purchased this car, and I think he paid about this much for it, and he bought it at this particular auction. And he had intentions to finish it. It was going to be a project, and he was going to make it new. He was going to restore it. And he's like, yeah, dad bought those three cars, and he thought he had enough out of those three cars. He was going to bring one together, and he was going to make a new one out of it. And there was not a single car in the whole place that had actually been restored. All of them were unfinished projects. Well, here's where I'm going with this. And this is good news for us. God has no unfinished projects on his agenda. He will always finish what he has started. And nobody was more confident of this than Paul. God initiated the salvation of the Philippians and the birth of the church. God would complete his work with or without Paul. The Philippians' security did not rest with Paul. It rested with God. And whatever Paul's fate might be, the fate of the Philippians was not at risk. And the scripture says here specifically, God will carry it on. God who initiates our Christian life is also the God 
who undertakes the continuation of our Christian life. God himself takes the responsibility for the progress of your spiritual life. It is a process. It is continual, but it has a date of completion. And the date of completion will be when you're in the presence of God. So the one that God justifies, he also sanctifies. And the one that God sanctifies, he will also glorify. So we can look around at the church and we can see people at different points on that continuum. It enables us and empowers us to be uh, patient with one another because we're not finished yet. God's not done with with what he's going to do in us. And that builds our fellowship because we know we're all headed toward that same finish line. And that finish line is in the presence of God. And he's going to bring it about and carry it on, the scripture says, to completion. That those who are saved by God's grace will be kept by God's grace. And those who are kept by God's grace will be made holy by God's grace. And those who are made holy by God's grace will be perfected when we're in heaven in the presence of God. This is a wonderful verse for the security of the believer. There's no way that God's ever going to not finish what he has started. So God is protecting. He's preserving. He's pushing. Even when we feel like we're not making progress, God is doing a work in us. When? Until the day of our Lord. So the outcome of our salvation is guaranteed. It's certain. And we should have confidence that God is going to bring that about. And the focus is not on us. When we are faithless, God remains faithful. When we are weak, God remains strong. He is our hope. And when we come alongside one another in the church... We're able to encourage each other. So when the times might be a little bit dark and you're feeling a little bit discouraged and you've got concerns and you don't know what's coming next, one of the beautiful things about the family of God is that somebody else can come alongside of you and say, God has not left you and I'm not going to leave you either. I'm going to pray for you. And God is going to be with you every step of the way. And we get the mutual blessing of that being a reality. So I ask you this question in closing today. Do you have a heart for fellowship? You can use these expressions that we've seen here in Philippians chapter 1 sort of as a test and ask yourself about your prayers for God's people, about your fellowship in the work of God about your confident faith and hope in what God is going to do and continue to do in your life. And he says here in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's coming back to the prayers again for the church. And what's the prayer? The prayer is that the church would bear the fruit of Christ's likeness, which would bring praise and glory to God. That's who we want to be as the local fellowship that gathers together and says, Lord, we're saints because that's who you called us to be as your children. But we're servants and we got work to do. 
And that work is all about making disciples and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. That's what drives us as a church. That's the kind of local body and fellowship that we want to be. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. God, we're grateful today for this example of the Philippian church, of Paul's words of heartfelt affection toward them, his gratitude to you for your power at work in their midst. And I might echo, Lord, a similar prayer of gratitude and remembrance of all that we have seen take place in the life of this body here locally. But Lord, we don't want to just rest on what we've experienced in the past and what we can remember. We want to press on toward that upward call. And we want to be faithful in this generation. We want to be used by you. So help us to that end. Teach us by your word and by your spirit. I pray for any here today who don't yet have fellowship with you who need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, that this moment, this time would be the the day of their salvation. I pray for the faithful core of this church that uh, though we are imperfect, Lord, and we are in need of grace daily, we do understand, Lord, what you're telling us. We're listening. We're listening, Lord. Bring us patiently along, but we're listening. Help us. Make us the people you want us to be. And I pray for the folks that haven't enjoyed those experiences of fellowship yet, that they'd lean in a little bit closer and they'd be willing to take a risk and come and be a part of this fellowship here to do the work that you've called us to together. So keep us unified and going in the same direction and bless us, Lord, as we seek to honor you and to exalt the name of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.